get away. Buy a ticket for that big airway. Ride that flying koala down under. Where women glow and men do chunder. You're at the beach and your budgie smugglers. You meet a sheila named Betty Bumbler. Don't listen to a thing she says. She left me for a guy named Ray. Ray, you flaming arsehole. Broken hearted, now I have trust issues. Gone to Woolies for flaming tissues. If you like me, want something new. Australia's here, waiting for you. Sheila Bloke, trans or envy, everyone's welcome to that, that bitch Betty. You break my heart, bitch. Fly Koala, flights daily in the sky. Greener Pastures, a podcast that once it's on your phone promises to never ghost you. Ash Sherberg here flying solo for this episode and today I'm honoured to be speaking with Scott Dickers about all things comedy and satire writing. Uh, this is another global interview with me down under in Australia staying safe from all the dangerous mice and Scott in Chicago. For those few people who don't know who Scott is, let me run through just a few of his accomplishments. Scott founded the world's first humour website, theonion.com, in 1996, having helped found the original Onion newspaper a few years earlier. Since then, he served as the Onion's owner and editor-in-chief on and off. Scott co-wrote the Onion's first original book, Our Dumb Century, which has sold over a million copies and debuted as a number one New York Times and number one Amazon bestseller. He also co-wrote the Onion's second original book, Our Dumb World, which backed it up again, debuting on the New York Times bestseller list. Two from two, pretty impressive. In the mid-2000s, Scott headed up the creation of the Onion News Network web series, serving as director and executive producer. He has led the Onion's rise from small, unknown college humour publication to internationally respected comedy brand. How has he done this? Well, he has shared some of his secrets in his How to Write series, How to Write Funny, Funnier, and Funniest. He has created courses and taught at Second City Chicago, home to many famous comedians and writers, including the Greener Pastures crew. Yes, we will be famous. Scott offers other courses and free resources for comedy writers on the How to Write Funny website. On top of this, he's a voice actor and director of several award-winning short films and two feature films, Spaceman and Bad Meat. I feel that I could spend the whole episode talking about what he has done, but let's hear from the man himself. Welcome, Scott. Thank you so much for having me, Ash. But now that half the podcast is over, after my list of <laughs> my life's work, we can announce Yeah, well, that's it. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Right. Um, so you're a teacher, a writer, a speaker, a director, an entrepreneur, and a marketer. That's like my dream LinkedIn profile. Out of all those, what do you prefer? I prefer the writing by far above all those things. I don't even do the directing anymore. I had to get out of directing movies because I realized it took way too much of something I don't have much of, which is extroversion, you know, the, the energy to deal with a lot of people and make a lot of decisions and be in a big crowd and be in charge of a lot of things and be under pressure. And so I stopped making movies about 10 years ago and I still miss like the feeling of finishing a production 
And so I started an animation company and I did short animated cartoons because there it was mostly just the writing and the voice work and post-production. That's what animation is. So you eliminate all the worst parts of filmmaking when you just do cartoons. So I really enjoyed that. I still do an occasional cartoon, but the writing is my favorite. It's my home base and I love it. And I'm an introvert at heart. So Almost all those other things involve dealing with other people in some way. But when I'm writing, I'm just in my own head, which is very comfortable for me. And uh, just picking up on that, I've heard quite a few writers describe themselves as introverted. Do you think that's a natural characteristic? Nobody's as introverted as me. All those people are (laughs) pretending to be introverts. So I I always have this competition. I meet other people who claim to be introverts. I'm like, okay, let's, let's see how introverted you are. Because I can go weeks without leaving my house, <laughs> without interacting with another person. And I, so many people are like, oh, I got to get out. I got to go somewhere. I got to talk to somebody. I don't need that shit. I literally don't need it. So you must, have loved, you must have loved the lockdown then. The lockdown. It was like a dream. Blessing in disguise. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was beautiful. I wrote so many books and I got so much done. And I had an immediate excuse for all those people inviting me out for a beer or for lunch or whatever. It was such a handy excuse. So, yeah, thankfully, I loved it. And I, obviously, I'm very sad that 600,000 people died. But it was really good for me. Excellent. Uh, when did you first realize you, could, you had a talent to make people laugh? Well, as with many comedy people, I think I realized that I liked to make people laugh long before I ever had a talent for doing so. (laughs) So I started when I was very young. As soon as I could speak, I was drawing little cartoons and making little books. You didn't mention my career as a comic strip creator and artist, which I did for 10 years. It's how I first got into the comedy business. And that stemmed from what I used to do as a kid. I was never really funny in person. I really enjoyed writing stuff and showing it to people and having them laugh at it. And so cartoons and stories, those were kind of the natural place for me. And, you know, there was a good 10 or 15 years between that beginning, which was probably around age four or five, Mm -hmm. to when I felt like I had actually started to develop some kind of skill in that area. And does your, uh, do you still have any of those early? comic pieces you produce yeah I, as a child i have uh, my first book it's called uh, riddles and jokes made it when i was about four it's <laughs> stapled together paper from my dad's office that he brought home like scrap paper and fantastic. terrible jokes you know fantastic do you go straight onto the fridge it no it's too big it's like a book you know it's many pages what? so uh, it doesn't it doesn't magnet onto the fridge for easy. Uh, so it's in a box and I scanned it and posted a couple of pages on Instagram once for fun. Fantastic. Uh, I put, put the best joke on, on Instagram, obviously. I put my best foot foot forward there. And do you remember what that best joke was? I I think it might have been uh, it was something like why did the skeleton cross the road because because it wanted to, but the wanted was spelled wrong. It was <laughs> Like a four-year-old <laughs> attempt at a joke, so it's cute, you know. Nice, cute works. So uh, you mentioned you started off as a four-year-old writing comics, but let's let's go back to the early nineties um, when Onion was formed. Can you tell us how that how that came about? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I was a cartoonist, and I was doing a comic strip in Madison, Wisconsin, that was really popular. And I self-published a book collection of that comic that made the New York Times bestseller list was my first New York Times bestseller. 
And so I was kind of the big man in campus as far as comedy goes. Everybody wore my T-shirts like you'd see them all over campus. I made thousands of dollars a month selling T-shirts for my comic book, my comic strip. And these two guys who wanted to start this campus humor publication came to me first, like to get my help and to be involved. And they were just really sharp, really smart, really charismatic guys who I just was immediately impressed with. And I was so ambitious and so interested in doing all things comedy that I just jumped right in and helped them from the start. And we discussed the name and like what, what it would be and figured out that we'd have to print it on newsprint because that was the cheapest, you know, nobody had any money. And we kind of scraped along, you know, barely covering our printing costs for about a year. And then they sold it to me and two other guys. And I, and so a team of two owners became a team of three one creative guy, that was me, one business guy, and then one production guy. And then we kind of sailed along for a few years. We bought out the third guy, the production guy, so it's just me and a business guy, and started to make some serious money, I would say about eight years into it. Mm-hmm. And that's about when we went online also. So you, you went online, uh, I think it was 1996. Uh, you know, this you is well, like well. <laughs> Yeah, well before Google, Facebook, even before Tom from MySpace uh, wanted to be our friend. So what was it like creating online content 20-odd years ago? The internet was a thing that you used for email, and Mm -hmm. you knew that there were these things called websites, but there weren't really any. You didn't really go to any. And when our computer guy suggested, hey, we're doing this weekly newspaper anyway, why don't we just put it on a website? I thought, all right nothing to lose, you know, maybe a couple of geeks, you know, we'll see it. (laughs) DARPA employees will see it. And so we put it up and, and it was literally the first humor website. And it was like, he knew HTML, he figured out HTML and he was able to code the graphics. So he put our logo on there and that was different. Every other website looked like, you know, you've seen them, those cheap, uh, yeah, yeah. Just text and links, you know, underlined links and stuff. That's what every website was at that point. And so we looked really slick and we had gotten pretty good at writing short comedy at that point because we were some eight years into it. And so when we debuted, people who had never heard of The Onion, who had never been to the Midwest in America saw it and they're like, oh my God, where did this come from? These people are really funny and this is really good. And so our readership really ballooned at that point uh, to an absurd degree. We were written up in The New Yorker and other places. It was just like one of those, you know, eight year success, instant overnight success story. Yeah. <laughs> everyone, yeah, everyone sees things as an overnight success and I realize all the hard work that goes in beforehand. Yeah. And this is yeah. why I always advise people who want to get into humor now, you know, don't, don't try to submit to a different, to another publication. Don't, don't try to do what everyone else is doing. Like do something, find something new. Like what's the new format? In my day, it was the internet. And we went in there first and we really dug our feet in and, and it really helped us. If I were that age now, I'd be thinking, okay, what's the new social media that nobody's on? You know, what can I be in? Should I be on TikTok? Should I be on Clubhouse? Whatever. And I would think of a way to capitalize on whatever the strengths are of those new media. And I would, I would do everything I could to get my work 
showcased and highlighted there in a really positive way so it stands out from everything else. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what uh, Sarah Cooper did so successfully last year with TikTok Absolutely. that kicked her off. Um, yep. I'm, still, I'm still trying to figure out Clubhouse. I don't know whether it's good or bad yet. I've joined, but not a lot happening. Yeah, it's it's grown really fast and it's changing really fast and nobody's really sure what's going on with Clubhouse. Just getting back to The Onion, uh, you've mentioned in previous, in some of your books and, and interviews that you need to capture the attention and that comes from the headlines. So it's almost like a chicken or egg story, uh, question for me. What comes first, the idea or the headline? Well, the headline is the idea. That's how we always pitched it at The Onion and it's how I think all short comedy is best done and that is come up with your concept first and your concept should be able to be stated in a short line or joke. It could be the title of your piece, could be a headline if it's a news parody article. But that should be funny and that should communicate what the general thrust of the piece is. Because in this day and age, with shortest attention spans the way they are and how it's an attention economy and nobody's like signing up to read any text, like you have to grab their attention and pull them in. You need to have something short and funny and sweet that is attractive that makes people want to read more. So they're one and the same. So if you were coming up with a headline, how many iterations of that would you normally go through before you say this is a winner? I wouldn't go through too many iterations of the same headline. I would come up with many, many different headlines and pick the funniest one. That's how I would do it. Occasionally, there's a situation where I'm really trying to nail a certain concept or idea and just trying to make it funny. So that can happen. And in that case, maybe I'd do, I don't know, 10 to 20 iterations. Excellent. So I've, I've had a look at your writing. Well, you've mentioned the need for a writing discipline, and I've, I've seen uh, your morning routine, and I don't know if you still stick with this or if it's evolved, but there was uh, incorporated gratitude, meditation, a sauna, tai chi. So I want to say, how disciplined are you with this, and what do you suggest for people who aren't so good at discipline? Discipline is... It takes eternal vigilance. It's one of those things that if you let it slide one or two days, you know, your natural state of inertia is going to prevent you from staying on the horse. So I wax and wane. Like right now, I'm in a period where I don't do a lot of that stuff. I still do the sauna. I still do the gratitude. But I don't do the Tai Chi anymore because I'm moving and there's literally no space in my apartment to do the Tai Chi. So that's fallen away. And as soon as I move, I'll have space and I'll be able to do it. But It's just like you're constantly falling off the horse. And so Mm -hmm. every day is a new day. And so every day it's like, can I get back on the horse today? Can I try to get back on the horse? And just trying to do something every day to get back on the horse because it never comes automatically. Like as much as you can instill certain habits in your life, it's so easy for them to fall away. So I'm also, because of the move, I'm having to do all this other work and I'm not writing every day, which was my big plan for 2021. I was going to write 12 books this year and I've only written Ooh. one at this point. I'm embarrassed. And only one. Only, only one, one so far. And it's our, it's almost <laughs> April for God's sake. So at this rate, I'll do four. So I started the next one and it was supposed to be done at the end of February, but this, this uh, move has been, was unexpected and it was a real upheaval. And my, my current apartment has a mold infestation. So it's like, it's, I, um, I looked into suing the landlord. I was talking to a lawyer and it was like all this work and didn't count on that. Didn't, it it didn't predict like how much time that would actually suck from my schedule and how much energy it would suck. So 
it's really unfortunate, but it's got to happen. And uh, I'll be much better for it once I'm uh, out of this place. So uh, 12 books, 12 months. My maths would uh, indicate that's one book a month. How many words would you anticipate to write a day? Or what's, what's the actual schedule like to produce a book a month? Yeah, it depends on the book. So I have a few books planned. I'm still going to pursue those. It's just going to take me a little longer than a year now. The first book was How to Write Funny Characters. So that came out in late February, I believe. And I, I think that book is around 40, 45,000 words, something like that, nonfiction, you know, shorter book. And the novel that I was working on after that, that I've now paused, is probably going to be more of an 85,000 word book. So basically what I do when I write a book is I figure out, I break it down into the chapters and then I break that down into days because mm-hmm. I kind of know how many words I can write in a day, but it does depend on the book. So for an 85,000 word book, if I write about 3000 words a day, rough draft, I know I'm going to be in really good shape at the end of the month. And that'll even give me a few days off where I don't have to write. Yeah. And I'll write 3000 words in a couple hours, you know, so this is like rough drafting, super fast, crank it out. And then I take a second month to read through that and smooth it out, rewrite stuff, you know, kind of do an editing pass. And then I take a third month to give it to a beta reader group, read the final book, get back to me with notes. And then I implement the notes that uh, I think are good. So it's a three-month process, but the way I do a book a month is I stagger that. So every month I'm doing a rough draft pass of one book, an editing pass of another book, and the beta reading pass of the pass. And then the, there's a fourth month that involves reading and editing the audiobook for that book. And that destroyed me last year because I wrote this <laughs> book that had a 12-year-old narrator. And so I couldn't do the audiobook myself. I had to hire a 12-year-old mm-hmm. actor, and he was amazing and fantastic. And I love everything about that project. But it was really time-consuming to work with him and to edit him as opposed to doing it myself, which I'm accustomed to. And also, he didn't even live in the same city as me. So it just caused a, a lot of – it was a really time-intensive thing, really blew my schedule. It took about three months just to complete that audiobook. Wow. Now, I read uh, Stephen King's book on writing, and he's – whichever writer reads um, – and he shuts himself in his office and locks himself away. I've got a, and our viewers won't see this, but on the back of your book is a picture of you writing and you're lounging on a couch uh, with your feet up on the table. Is that how you actually write? Or sure. do you lock yourself away? I, 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 that's how I was writing then. And <laughs> I write differently depending on where I am. I've been very conscious of how a lot of writers feel like, you know, I can only write from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. and I have to have my cup of coffee next to me. I have to be listening to this music and I have to have my laptop. I it was determined from the get-go to be as flexible as possible so I could write under any circumstances. So I can write in a cafe, I can write in my house, I can write any time of day, I can dictate into a phone, I can write on a computer, I can write on a piece of paper. So I don't have any set thing. But if if push comes to shove, how, how I like to do it is I do like to write on a laptop and I prefer that over dictating. Yep. Though I must say, I think when I dictate, I write better. But it's such a pain. It's such a pain to format that. I, I learned all yeah. these shortcut terms to talk into the 
I used this Dragon Anywhere software, which I finally got rid of and switched to Evernote. But they don't have as many prompts. They don't have as many words mm-hmm. that you can use to format. So it's just a pain to reformat that stuff. So yeah, I prefer to write on my laptop and I often am sitting in that position. I do not have good posture. I, I slouch and I sit in the most uncomfortable, non-ergonomic furniture. I have this cheap Ikea chair that I sit in sometimes at my, my um, the table where I eat. Sometimes I literally, so lately I've been sitting in my little couch, which is right next to a coffee table. And I right there, my back hurts doing that. But it, it doesn't matter because as long as I'm writing and I'm doing my daily quota of words, don't care. Don't care about my discomfort. And what's the caffeine intake like? Oh, I don't, I, don't do, I don't do caffeine. The only time I do caffeine is, and I've never tasted coffee. I don't even know what it tastes like. I've never had it. Wow. I had a good friend of mine um, got me this caffeinated maca coconut powder that you put in yeah. water. I'm a crazy healthy eater, so I don't eat any like sugar or processed food or uh, grains. I just eat vegetables and healthy fats and clean meats. And so the only time I drink that stuff is when I have to pull an all nighter because I'm on a deadline on a project, which I do way too often. And so I just drink caffeine like every two or three hours. And because I don't drink it every day, it's like a powerful drug for me that really works. <laughs> and then I stop. And so, no, I just drink water. I drink um, pure spring water is what I drink in the morning. I didn't think you'd come. The lucky country, full of sun. Truth, you've taken me breath away. That facial air, your ears, hey. Packed a picnic full of Vegemite. I feels like back in Yosemite. How'd you like traveling the flying koala? You know they have two genitalia. Freelance geno for major papers. Now we connect on deeper layers. We ordered dinner, a steak filet. That's when I learned you're rough in debt and running away from a mafia boss. One that you had double cross. Sorry to say, mate, I've got to run. I forgot to get me dishes done. Don't be blubber for a quick getaway. That bitch owes me a favour anyway. You bitch. Flying koala. Flights daily. In the sky. This may seem a, a, question, a strange question for someone who teaches comedy and writes books on comedy, but can you teach someone who isn't funny to write funny? How much is inherent and how much can be taught? Let me ask, let me ask you this. Are there any other skills that you can think of that are inherent that can't be taught? It's uh, a good question. I think it, I was having this discussion the other day because someone was telling me they're going to do a course on entrepreneurship, and I said you can't be taught to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> I think you have you're a born one or you're not. But yeah, I get your point. I think it's um, a it's a qualification that is a badge of honor that people who already are good at something can say, oh no no you can't teach that you can't teach it. But my feeling is we all come out as blank slates. An infant is not good at anything. An infant practices things and gets good at things. And I have seen, and you know, I count myself among the examples. I have seen people who start off totally unfunny and they learn the craft and they get to be 
really successful doing comedy writing or performing or something like that. It has nothing to do with talent or innate ability. All it has to do with, in my experience, is do you love it? Because if you love doing it, you're going to do it obsessively and doing something obsessively, whether you fail or succeed, and then you just keep coming back and doing it because you love it, that's how you get good at anything. So the people who aren't funny are the people who never wanted to be funny, never tried to learn how to be funny. But if they did, they could. That's my feeling. And that's a, a good point. Satire writers have to be generally across topical news and on top of the news cycle. So what advice could you give to an individual writer sitting at home, wants to be a satire writer, trying to compete with the daily shows and their, their team of squad of writers? How can an individual break ahead of them? First of all, I don't think that it's required to be up on the news to do satire. As long as you have a feeling about what it's like to live in modern society, or if you know what human beings are like, you can do great satire. If you're interested in doing news parody, I would recommend you not do that because it's a flooded market. <laughs> Too many people are doing. But everybody likes satire. Everybody likes social satire. I, I would avoid making that about current events if I were doing it, um, if I were starting out doing it. Excellent. That's, that's good advice. Um, I mentioned at the start, as all good writers and comedians do, you, you have your own podcast. Um what insight have you learned from a guest where you thought, hey, I never thought of that? One nugget of wisdom around satire or comedy that you went, hey, shit, that's good. Yeah, I I usually pick up a little something with just about everybody. So if I had to think of one, there is one that I come back to quite a bit that I think of that was an analogy. Uh, I was interviewing Ellie Kemper, who wrote a book recently and stars on the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And we were talking about how she succeeded early by writing a lot, performing a lot and failing a lot and just keep coming at it, doing like what I was just saying a moment ago about how she loved doing it, couldn't be stopped and just kept doing it. And then got some success early. She got hired on the office and that was a springboard for her comedy performing career. And then she was able to put, put out her book and stuff like that. And I kind of, it dawned on me as we were talking, it's like, Oh, that's why so many young people succeed in comedy because it takes so much confidence to succeed in comedy that if you don't do it early when you still have that unbreakable confidence of youth, if you do it later in life, it's going to be really hard for you to break through. And the analogy that we came up with was it's like rocket fuel. It's like you need a lot of fuel just to break orbit. And that's what happens when you're in your late teens, early 20s. You have so much energy and you have so much passion to succeed that's your rocket fuel. And you need that to break orbit. Once you break orbit, you can kind of relax a little bit. You get a few opportunities. Maybe you build a platform. Then things come easier and you don't have to work that hard. That was really interesting to me. And I totally understood that. And I lived that too. I lived that life. I, I, I was so ambitious in those years. And I still feel like I'm pretty ambitious. I mean, look at me with my 12 books a year. Or whatever. 12 books. <laughs> pretty ambitious is an understatement. But I was even more ambitious then. I wanted to do everything and I wanted to do it the better than anybody else. And when you're not a success, like that, for me, that fueled me. It fueled me that I was nobody and nobody knew who I was. Nobody had read my work. That, that lit a fire under me like nothing else. And I needed that to kind of break orbit. Excellent. So what advice would you give to the writers listening to this who are trying to break orbit and probably getting a lot of rejections? What's the best way to handle those rejections? 
I got some great advice early on when I was doing comic strips and I would send my comic strips to the big syndicates and I would get so many rejection letters. I read this series of books about how to draw comics that had this great advice in there. And he, this guy who wrote the books, Ken Muse was his name, didn't even explain the advice. He just gave the advice. And it was so smart. He said, when you get a rejection letter from a syndicate, be proud, be excited, because that means they saw your work and you're doing it. You're out there. You're getting stuff done. You're making things happen. Hang them on your wall, save them. And maybe someday they'll even write a note on the form rejection letter. They'll even, they might even say, you know, maybe thinner lines next time, you know, who knows? Um, cartooning feedback. But (laughs) I was too young and stupid to understand how powerful that advice was. And I just took it. I took the advice. And when I got a rejection letter, I was excited. I was really excited. Hey, I got, I got through, they saw it, you know? So you gotta, you gotta change your mindset. If, If rejection letters are disappointing to you or upsetting, that's crippling. Like how, how can you manage that? That was another thing Ellie Kemper said. She just kept getting rejection after rejection after rejection. And it was more like, um, she was like an ant when you when you destroy the anthill. They don't complain or grouse or get depressed. They just start build, they keep building. They put up more sand. <laughs> they just keep going. And again, you you kind of need the stupid blunt headedness of youth to keep doing that. So if you're older, it's harder. You have to muster more of that youthful spirit. Change your mindset. Get excited when you get a rejection letter. And also don't rely on other people's rejection or acceptance. Go out and start your own thing. You can do anything you want. You guys started a publication on Medium. It's exactly what everybody should do. And it should be different from every other publication. It should have something about it that's really unique. Excellent. I agree. Speak, this is, that's a good segue into Nick. Um, just before we finish up, I want to touch on something that a lot of writers probably aren't good at, and that's marketing. Um, you wrote a book on the subject, Outrageous Marketing. So what advice can you give writers about marketing themselves and their work? The best marketing advice I can give is to be obsessed with your work and try to get it everywhere you possibly can. It's a foundational marketing principle that in this day and age is more effective than ever because there's so much material being published, you know, vying for the attention of an audience that if you just write one piece, you know, every three months or whatever, like you're just not making a dent in anybody's awareness You have to be constantly producing stuff and you have to be doing social media all the time because marketing now is all word of mouth. It's all, what's your platform? It's like, how big is your email list? That kind of stuff. And people can make a living on that once they have a big enough fan base. I know so many comedians who have enough followers on Instagram that when they post that they're going to be appearing in Lubbock, Texas next Tuesday, they'll have enough people show up just from their following Mm -hmm that they'll be able to, you know, make a pretty good haul on that for that one show. So any other kind of marketing you might do, like that a professional marketing person might advise you to do is probably going to cost money, but that's the kind that's free. Keep producing, produce a lot, get it out there. And if you love it, that shouldn't be a problem. That should be fun for you. I have a marketing background myself and our old saying was content is king. So I think that holds true for comedy. Excellent. Well, uh, we're almost coming to the end of our chat, um, but being Australian, I have to ask a couple of very biased questions. Uh, once COVID has settled down, do you have any plans to come to Australia and teach, perform, write, speak? Yeah, I actually do have a plan. I, I was planning a trip to Australia in April of last year and had to scuttle it. So mm-hmm. I will be I will be coming as soon as 
us filthy Americans are allowed to travel <laughs> to another, another sensible country. Sensible, yeah, sometimes sensible. Um, and are you familiar with any Australian writers? Uh, I know a couple of uh, web, popular websites, publications, The Chaser and The Shovel, Credit The Onion for their inspiration, but are you, do you follow any Australian satire? No, I am aware of that. the second one you mentioned and – I, I don't get enough of it here. I don't get enough Australian comedy or TV. There's, I'm sure there's some, but there's so much content. It's like hard, hard to, uh, there have been shows on for eight seasons that are amazing that I've never heard of <laughs> part of the world that we live in now. But yeah, I, I love Australia. I've always wanted to go. When I was a teenager, we had an Australian student teacher stay at our house and he was oh, a fantastic. teacher at, at my high school. And I was just enchanted by the idea. And I love the man from Snowy River. And I love Road, the Road Warrior, you know, both directed by two different George Millers from uh, the same country, which is so bizarre to me. It always has been very bizarre. The two great directors came from Australia, both named George Miller. That's actually and, my real name. Oh, wow. That's amazing. It must be a very common name. Really. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I've always been enchanted by the place. Love it to death. Uh and can't wait to visit. Hopefully you get down here soon. Um, one final question. You once said that the human butt is the single funniest thing in the known universe. Do you still stand by that? Yeah, absolutely. That The list of the funniest things is something I used to refer to. It's an unofficial list that I kind of always had in my head. And we'd be at The Onion talking about jokes and stuff, and there'd be a story about pants. And I would say, pants, you know, that's number eight on the list of... <laughs> Funny, inherently funny things. And the human butt, always number one. Monkeys, number two. There are certain <laughs> what about, what a, a monkey Hat, butt? Where, where would that come? Hats are pretty far up. Where would a monkey butt go? Yeah. It's, you know, the list of inherently funny things is not scientific. It's comedy. <laughs> so the, a monkey butt isn't even in the top 30. It doesn't make any sense. Cool. Yeah, it doesn't even make any sense. Because the monkey butt is actually kind of a cliche. The idea that, you know, uh, monkeys' butts are red and swollen and all that, like that's just kind of shock value humor. But the human butt is funny and monkeys are fun. <laughs> Excellent. Um, for all those listeners who want to check out more of Scott, you can go to his website, scottdickens.com, and also uh, howtowritefunny.com, which has a lot of great free resources uh, you can check out and download ebooks um, as well as purchase some of his books. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, you're very giving back to the community. I know you've done a lot of Zoom sessions with other comedy groups so uh, you're always giving back and sharing your knowledge of success which is fantastic i want to thank the audience for listening and tune in next monday for a new interview until then be sure to check out greener pasture magazine on medium thanks for your time scott dickens uh thanks so much for having me it's been a pleasure